Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And And this this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to Episode 7 of the podcast. My name is Dr. Renee White and my co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci, is currently on mat leave where she is enjoying the beautiful baby snuggles uh, with her second born. And we are, for those who this may be your first episode listening to our podcast or the seventh, welcome back. We are scientists who are also postpartum doulas and our goal in life is to nurture and care for new mamas. We do this through our business called Fill Your Cup where we provide in-home postpartum care for mamas in Melbourne And we also have our meal delivery service called Fill Your Freezer. Now, when we were conceiving the idea of our meal delivery service, there was one person who heavily influenced um, our decision-making in the dishes that we chose to include within our menu. And that person is none other than our guest today, Lily Nichols. Mika and I are such huge fans of Lily's work. She is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. Um, She's a certified diabetes educator, researcher and author where she provides uh, evidence-based prenatal nutrition. Her work is known for being research-focused, thorough and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines, which just speaks to everything that we live and breathe for here at Fill Your Cup. She's the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And the thing that we love about Lily is, as she says, she's unapologetically critical of the outdated dietary guidelines. She has literally combed through all the research and turned it on its head and written her books about, you know, this is what the guidelines should be and this is the evidence that backs up those facts. And in an age where we are being heavily influenced by, you know, memes and reels and things like that on social media and fear-mongering around, you know, you should eat this and you should eat that – There should be a constant reminder that, you know, don't just take things on face value just because, um, you know, some random influencer has told you X about a particular food or, or nutrient. Have a look at the facts. Ask them for some evidence based on that allegation. You'd be surprised how many people may be, you know, reeling around with quote unquote fake news. So Lily resides on the other side of the world, which you'll all hear later on in the interview. There was a bit of a laugh about um, the fact that I thought she was in Canada. She's not. Um, She's in the US. But nonetheless, uh, it was a very crisp Friday morning here in Melbourne when I got up at 4am to interview the beautiful Lily Nichols. And we spoke about a range of topics. These include the current dietary guidelines for pregnancy nutrition and how outdated these are, food aversions and how in fact the concept of us not consuming particular foods like runny yolks or pate may in fact be depleting us of nutrients that we really require during pregnancy. And then we touch on 
my favorite topic, which is folate and how the synthetic version folic acid, commonly found in all the leading prenatal vitamins, may in fact not be metabolized correctly by 40 to 60% of the population. And in fact, we may not be reaping those benefits of the vitamin as expected. So let's jump into it. Here's Lily Nichols. So hello, Lily. Welcome to the Science of Motherhood. Thank you for joining us on what is a very crisp morning in Melbourne. How's things over there? Uh, turns out that it's pretty sunny today. So we have a, a nice day. I know I'm at like the afternoon and you're in the morning. So yes, fi- very, very early 5am. Well, although I have a toddler, so it's not that super early actually. <laughs> <laughs> So welcome to the podcast. So for all those playing at home, Lily is a registered dietitian nutritionist who specializes in pregnancy and postpartum nutrition. And you're also a certified diabetes educator. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess we probably wanted to start with what is a nutritionist? What's the hierarchy of becoming a nutritionist? And within that, you know, what type of advice can you actually give out to your clients? Well, that's a bit of a complicated question, actually. (laughs) Um, And I don't know how much of it differs in Australia. I think they have a pretty similar, I don't know if you want to call it a hierarchy, but um, pretty similar system in that, uh, well, in the US, I'll say this, in the US, anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. Okay. So you can take a weekend course, you can take no courses, you can have a PhD in nutrition and just not go forward with becoming a registered dietitian. Um, any of those, you could call yourself a nutritionist. Um, there are various different certifications of variable qualities. I can't say I'm super familiar with all of the different, you know, avenues for it, um, of certification, But the registered dietitian uh, designation, I would say, is like the most, at least in the conventional medical world, the most uh, accepted standard. And that just ensures that you have a bachelor's degree in nutrition. So usually a four-year degree, sometimes it takes five years because we have a (laughs) a lot of classes. Um, and then an additional approximately one year internship uh, in mostly a clinical setting, but also in other settings that dietitians can work in. Um, and then you have to pass a national exam that registers you. Um, this unfortunately puts some people who are very highly educated, but don't complete the dietetics requirement um, in an interesting situation where you're kind of just lumped into the handbag of nutritionists out there. And again, I I think there are some certifications that are a little more higher level and respected, but they're not as like widely known as the registered dietitian um, designation. So yeah, it's kind of a wild, wild west in the nutrition space. Um, And to add to that, I guess on the unfortunate side, even though I am a registered dietitian, our curriculum is very um, much you know, teaching the standard dietary guidelines. And you may have some classes or different professors that push you to research things, or you may choose to do that on your own, like I did. Um, But sometimes you can have a a subset of dietitians who are very resistant to learning new information, because what they are taught is just the guidelines. And so it can become a little bit um, dogmatic. Mm -hmm. So Regardless, you know, as with any profession, you have like good doctors and bad doctors, right? (laughs) I think the same is true of dietitians. You have open-minded dietitians who try to stay on top of current research and you have some dietitians who just try to tear down anybody who speaks uh, against the guidelines or recommends anything that isn't like totally buttoned up status quo. So yeah, here we are. Great. And so you've pretty much led me into what it was going to be my next question. So here in Australia, you know, we were taught about, you know, that stock standard food pyramid where, you know, carbs are king and, uh, you know, I've lived through the no or low fat 
or no sugar diet, um, conventional high carb diets for pregnant women in particular. And so your book, Real Food for Pregnancy, essentially turns this all on its head, right? And I just wanted to understand, you know, you advocate and you challenge that status quo, as you say, um, not just with words, but with evidence-based research. And that's one of the things that Mika and I absolutely love. That's, you know, one of our philosophies for our business. Can you speak to, through your education and, you know, into your professional career, what were some of those defining moments where you did have to push back and, and you kind of thought, hold on a minute, you know, this doesn't make sense. The research actually says that these guidelines are probably archaic and outdated and maybe this is something we need to actually have a look at. I mean, I was having those, uh, I was having those moments even during my, uh, my training. So, you know, it wasn't like after getting into the field that I was like, wait a minute, (laughs) I, I had some some hunches uh, prior to, so I actually used my time in school as an opportunity to explore some of those things. So exploring, for example, the research on saturated fat, you know, my textbook was still saying, avoid butter and saturated fat at all costs, use margarine instead. I mean, literally like stuck in the 1980s. Um, and so I was questioning some of those things early on, I would say, Career-wise, though, like after I was out in the field, done with my internship, um, certainly when I was working with um, women with gestational diabetes, which is something I have a lot of clinical experience with, uh, that's really when I was like, okay, we need to make some some changes here. Um, more so because I was, you know, I was trying to be a good dietitian and follow the guidelines, so I was recommending you know, with a little tweak, still recommending generally within what would be, you know, standard accepted um, practice, um, where you're providing a minimum of 175 grams of carbohydrates per day. That's one of their like, hills to die on in uh, (laughs) conventional gestational diabetes care. And I my clients blood sugars were either not improving or getting worse. And that was probably the first time that I've really significantly dug into the research and was looking at where did these guidelines even come from? Because nobody could tell me, even my mentors in the field who had been doing this work for 30 plus years beyond me, um, couldn't tell me like where that number came from. It's as if nobody even asked the question, like, why are we recommending this number? I don't know. Cause everybody told me to, yeah. so we just do it. Cause, uh, you know, I don't want to get sued or I don't want to, I don't want to hurt the baby or there was always a concern about ketosis. And so I just went really deep in the research on that one particular topic. That's ultimately what influenced the writing of my first book, real food for gestational diabetes. Um, because we were, we were not only not helping women, but I would argue we were harming them by giving them advice that was making their blood sugar significantly worse. And even if you treat with medication and insulin, um, unfortunately, you know, when you're just on a blood sugar roller coaster, it's really hard to keep your blood sugar consistently within range when you're constantly trying to treat and correct for highs. Mm -hmm. So I, I, we weren't doing people any favors. And then when you start understanding, you know, what are the nutrients that are most required for prenatal health and fetal development? And where do we find those um, nutrients in food? you're not finding vitamin B12 and choline and um, at least naturally occurring iron in high amounts in these high carb, especially high carb processed foods, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately make up the majority of people's carbohydrate intake. And it was like, okay, we we just have to like scratch this, um, reverse engineer a better approach. So that's kind of what my work ends up doing nowadays is like, let's pick apart these guidelines and see like, where did they come from? Do they make sense? Does the research support them? Maybe it did at one point. Does it currently, you know, there's a lag time of often 17 years until research makes it into clinical practice. So like, can we cut down on that lag time? 
Um, I understood, having worked in public policy, that there's so many bureaucratic layers between eliciting change in that system that I was like, I just have to go directly to the people, you know, directly to the pregnant women, (laughs) directly to the practitioners, um, because I know we can do better. And hopefully that will inspire those, you know, clinical trials and other studies to, to actually test these things out. Yeah, that's fantastic. (laughs) Mika and I kind of have the same sentiment. It's like, you know, we've been in research, we've, you know, from bench to bedside, a a drug in one of our labs would take, you know, 10, 15 years and a billion dollars to kind of produce. And I don't think there's enough education around how long it actually takes to get those results to the public. So, um, yeah, that's essentially part of our podcast is to take the research direct to the people, which is great. Yep. Yep. So, so on that point, um, could you explain to the listeners, you know, looking at the current guidelines, what would you have as your ideal nutrition guidelines? What would be your new quote unquote food pyramid for, for women who are pregnant? Um, and could you walk us through things like, um, what kind of micro and macronutrients they should be looking at and probably maybe start as a definition. What are micro and macronutrients? Sure. Yeah. So I would say our our current dietary guidelines are definitely built from a a top-down approach and that they're looking at the macronutrients. Um, You need these macronutrients in these ratios, and then that kind of informs everything else, and the micronutrients are a bit of an afterthought. So Mm -hmm. I'll explain what those are and why my approach is different. So the macronutrients are the nutrients you need in large amounts. They're the ones that provide you with energy. So your fat, protein, and carbohydrates are your macronutrients, whereas your micronutrients are your vitamins, minerals, and arguably some other nutrients that don't fit into either of those two categories neatly um, that are important for your body's function, important for optimal health, may assist in the production of energy in your body, but they're not providing you directly with calories. And you usually need them in fairly small amounts like milligram or microgram dosages where your macronutrients you need in like many grams, sometimes hundreds of grams a day. Okay. Just to give you the perspective on why they even bothered categorizing them. Um, My approach, what I uncovered, I guess I would say with the carbohydrate recommendations being, I mean, I know how they're calculated. I can do the math, but they're essentially pulled out of thin air because all of the assumptions we make about nutrient requirements for adults as a whole are pretty much pulled out of thin air. So, <laughs> oh, that's good to based know. <laughs> on some, based on some really old research, um, I think we could question that. So um, my approach, instead of looking at, okay, we need a specific gram amount of this macronutrient, or we need, say, 45 to 65% of our diet to come from carbohydrates. Like I I don't take it from that approach. What I do is I just think of what is a reasonable amount of food for a pregnant woman to eat. I might use a a just sort of range of calories. Um, Let's like fit in foods in there and then run a micronutrient analysis and like, or just a full nutrient analysis and see where we come up. I think we have much stronger research on some of the micronutrient requirements. So like, okay, if we provide a pregnant woman with this amount of vitamin B12, is she going to maintain sufficient serum levels of vitamin B12? And is her baby going to be born with enough vitamin B12 stores as well? Or if we take it too low, like what problems do we end up with? So Mm -hmm. that's where I took it from. I ran some nutrient analyses on what I think would be a more nutrient-sufficient, whole foods-based diet, and then see where we come up with. And it it just so happened that it was much more likely to meet all of the recommended daily allowances for all the micronutrients, but the macro ratios were very different than the conventional standards. Um, Not super off on protein, although I will say my protein... Um, I recommend higher amounts of protein than the guidelines. And actually the research supports that. Now we now know that we underestimated the protein requirements 
in pregnant women by about, you know, 73%. So <laughs> we might need more protein. Um, that was from the first ever study done to look at protein requirements directly in pregnant women, which was done in 2015, by the way. So to give people an idea of like the status of the research, I think our guidelines pretend to be a lot more sure of themselves than they should be. Like I'm constantly questioning everything because we don't know so much. Okay. (laughs) That's right. Protein a little higher um, on my plan, but the fat and carbohydrate ratios are like completely turned on their head. Um, You, I, in my opinion, you should really not be eating half of your diet from carbohydrates. The resulting diet ends up just automatically being micronutrient deficient unless you're like supplementing the heck out of it. Um, But also you can end up with lower intakes of, um, you know, certain other important things involved in fetal development, like, you know, the micronutrient choline, or there might be specific amino acids that you need more of in pregnancy, um, above and beyond uh, what would be typical, just based on the amount of, you know, your body's growing a brand new human being. So there's that, that requires a lot of protein, but also your body tissues are adjusting and expanding to make room for that and to grow that baby safely and to keep them safely tucked away in your uterus until it's time for you to go into labor and for your water to break and all these things to happen. Right. So, um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, no. the circuitous way of going about it, but it totally does. It totally does. So, you know, um, and with that, like, you know, the guidelines, I mean, I essentially turned into, do you have potato gems in, in Canada? Do you know? Uh, Well, they're like tiny, I think they're called tiny tots or something. Tiny tots. Um, we have, we have like kid gems. So I, I always joke that I nearly turned into a potato gem when I was in my first trimester, um, of, of my, uh, pregnancy because all I ate was carbs because that's all I could deal with, with the nausea. But thereafter, I, I just, I kind of, sit back and think, you know, with the guidelines, they tell you carb, 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 but I actually didn't feel like a lot of carbs afterwards. And I think sometimes as women, we just need to like tap into that intuition and go, well, for sure. What, what is happening with my body right now? As you say, you're producing a whole new human being and it's a lot of protein that you're kind of producing for this, for this little human. Um, and my body just went to craving protein and it's really interesting because, you know, weeks where I would have read in, um, you know, my pregnancy book, you know, this week, there's going to be a lot of bone development or something. I would literally be just walking around the house with like a kilo tub of yogurt and I would just be (laughs) smashing yogurt. And I think sometimes, you know, we're given all of these leaflets and information sheets as, you know, during pregnancy, oh, this is what you need to eat. But sometimes I think we just need to step back and go, what's our body craving? Our body knows what we need. And that's why it's telling you it needs these things. So yeah, I think in terms of for those people listening at home, just maybe have a think about that, take a step back and, and, (laughs) and give your body what it needs. Um, and on yeah. that on that point, I um, when I was reading your book and the section around food aversions, so I'm I'm a person who loves poached eggs, loves a runny yolk, and I remember when I fell pregnant, I wasn't aware of your work at that stage, and the first thing I was somewhat disappointed about was the fact that I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to have runny yolk eggs anymore or I come from a European background we have like salami and things like that all the time and I'm like oh you know I'm not going to be able to have that anymore um and I just wanted to touch on that because I pulled a quote from the book and it's actually um a study from Australia and you've said one study of nearly 7,500 women in Australia found that women who consciously limit their consumption of potential listeria containing foods, and that's the reason why we're told don't go near those things, are likely to have suboptimal nutrient intake from foods, specifically fiber, folate, iron, vitamin E, and calcium. Can you touch on 
this whole food aversion phenomenon because I see this all the time. You know, there's people who are pregnant at like social events and people are like, oh, you can't eat that or what's that fish that you're having and all that type of stuff. So can you can you speak to that point? And, and as I said, you know, there are, you know, situations where we could in fact be um, harming rather than, you know, just going for the risk benefit kind of analysis. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm glad you expanded upon food aversions because my interpretation of food aversions is more akin to the nausea where like, oh, I don't feel like I can eat this versus like you're told to avoid certain foods. Um, so the foods to avoid, most of the things that make that list are because of either a potential risk that the food will be contaminated with some type of bacteria or microorganism that could make you sick. Mm -hmm. And uh, during pregnancy, your body does make some immunologic changes to allow baby to grow, which result in you being more susceptible to certain foodborne illnesses, such as um, contracting listeria or salmonella. Um, The other reason things sometimes make it on the list is because of the likelihood they may contain toxins. I think this is most prevalent with regards to advice around fish and avoiding certain kinds of fish because of mercury. However, the advice on fish and mercury is usually not given with the specifics around oh, there's only a handful of type of fish that you need to avoid. Instead, it's just given as no fish, um, which is really unfortunate. So we can touch on that more if you'd like. But in terms of the food safety issue, what I find rather perplexing about all of it is that, at least in the States, because it is different, depending on the country you're in, sometimes the guidelines can be a little bit different. I think Australia and the US and Canada are pretty similar in their guidelines. Um, But the foods that are on those lists are not necessarily the foods that are most likely going to make you sick, which is really confusing to people. And it's confusing to myself as well, right? So we have your, you know, soft cheeses, raw milk, runny yolk, eggs, um, undercooked meat or fish. What am I missing? Deli meats. Pate. 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 Well, yeah, that's actually puts it, that's even in a different category. There's a <laughs> potential food safety concern if it's pre-made pate, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But there's also some additionally unwarranted concerns about vitamin A. That's a separate topic we can get into. But all these foods, you'll notice they're all essentially animal foods. Um, And yes, there is a chance that these foods can become contaminated. However, in the States, the majority of foodborne illness outbreaks are actually from raw fruits and vegetables. Literally 46% of foodborne illness outbreaks are from raw fruits and vegetables. But there is absolutely no warning given to avoid salads or fresh cut fruit. And it is mainly the the leafy greens and your your raw fruits, um, especially pre-cut Uh, If you're buying like pre-cut watermelon or something in the grocery store, like I personally wouldn't touch that when I'm pregnant, but I will happily have eggs with runny yolks because the chances that you'll get sick from an egg with a runny yolk is like very, very slim. The chances that an egg contains salmonella is one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 eggs. Sickness from eggs accounts for only 2% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the States. And yet that is something that is like, held over our heads it's like <laughs> do not eat these runny yolk eggs like you're gonna kill your baby I mean really that's how it's presented to us and it's in my opinion completely blown out of proportion um so I think yes we need a bit of a risk benefit discussion on how likely are you actually going to get sick from this food how you know how likely is it that it's contaminated um is there anything you could do to mitigate that risk that would still allow you to enjoy that food so Um, If you're really, you know, food safety conscious, right? So you could cook your eggs until the yolks are totally firm. You know, if you like your eggs that way, no problem. And you've probably also, you know, again, mitigated that very infinitesimally small risk that it has salmonella. If that makes you feel good, great. But if your uh, response to this is that I'm not going to eat eggs anymore because maybe the only way you like them is soft boiled or over easy or something like that. 
we're actually have, we've created a different problem here. And now we've created a problem of likely this person will not consume enough essential nutrients, especially choline, which is a vital B vitamin like compound that's very important for placental health and for the, the, the development of baby's vision and their brain development. So eggs account for more than half of the choline intake in our diets. It's really, really important. It's even more important for women who don't consume many animal products as a whole that they still include eggs in their diet because they've now limited like a significant other source of the choline that they would otherwise be getting. So I, that conversation just, just doesn't happen. Like these sort of nuanced, like, okay, is this actually going to make me sick? How likely is it? What nutrients does it contain? Nobody, no one's having these conversations. And so I think sometimes these guidelines can do more harm, which is just as that Australian study pointed out, you know, you can have lower nutrient intakes if instead of women having eggs for breakfast, they're now just having cereal or toast with jam your nutrient intake is significantly different um, and unfortunately is often, you know, compromised. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for enlightening us on that because it, it was, a, I feel like it's almost like a scare tactic that they, they're like, they're so terrified that you could get sick and as you say, harm your baby, but you know, right. you could in fact be missing out on all of these amazing um, nutrients for, for your baby. And I don't think that's explained um, very well here at least it definitely wasn't for me so Lily I wanted to switch gears now and talk about a subject that I'm very very interested in and I know you did an IGTV on this particular topic um, a few weeks back and that is the topic of folate and the differences between the varieties of folate, including folic acid. And I was wondering if you could speak to a few of the statistics that you were describing in that 40 to 60% of the population, in fact, have a genetic mutation in the gene MTHFR, which encodes for an enzyme which assists in metabolizing folic acid. So, in fact, you know, whilst we're taking all of these prenatal vitamins in which folic acid is arguably one of the most common forms of folate found in these supplements, there is a significant proportion of us in the population who in fact may not be reaping the benefits of this our prenatal vitamins as expected. So I was wondering if you could just speak to those points and enlighten us a bit more around the topic of folate. Yeah, so folate is a very confusing topic. Um, you know, not only do I have that that video that I did with a colleague of mine, but I also have like a, I don't know, 7,500 word blog post. Yep. With like, I don't know. 40 Which is fantastic. If anyone crazy. hasn't read that, go and read it. It's yeah, amazing. So there's, I've written and talked um, a lot about this topic. So I'll try to keep it, you know, brief and as understandable as possible. But folate is really an umbrella term for vitamin B9 that you can take in in many different forms in your diet. And um, we get it from our diet, but we also get it from supplements or from fortified foods. And not all forms of the nutrient are as well utilized by your body as the type that we naturally come in contact with from food, which the majority of what we get from food is in the form known as methylfolate. And researchers... Um, kind of tried to outsmart mother nature by synthesizing a synthetic form of folate called folic acid to enhance its absorption. And um, it is a form that is very well absorbed. However, it is not very well utilized, which is not really surprising as it's not a form of folate that we find in nature. It is structurally different. Um, so yeah, you absorb a lot of it in your body, but you don't necessarily metabolize it well. 
And for people who have certain genetic differences, as you mentioned, MTHFR, which refers to a gene that encodes for an enzyme that's involved in your folate metabolism, if you are one of the lucky 40 to 60% of the population that has a variation in your MTHFR, your body is less efficient at metabolizing synthetic folic acid. It can metabolize some of it, um, but depending on the form of your MTHFR variation, your metabolism of folic acid can be reduced up to 70%. You can still utilize the stuff found in food, and you can still utilize if you're supplementing with methylfolate, which again would be in the identical form that the majority of the folate in food is found, um, you would be fine. You're fine. Um, whether or not you know your MTHFR status, you can use the stuff found in food. We can all use methylfolate. The type of folate found in our body, found in our bloodstream, found in um, fetal blood supply is 95 to 98% methylfolate. So um, the short answer is you don't need to go out and get a genetic test. Just, you know, you can take the precautionary principle and just take the form of folate, take a prenatal that has methylfolate, because no matter what your genetics are, you can utilize it. And your body doesn't have to do additional legwork to convert it into methylfolate. It's already in the methylfolate form. You've just saved your body some work. Um, so that's the short answer. The long answer can be a much longer if you want me to clarify any points or, you know, let me know. No, that that's great. And, you know, I would uh, encourage everyone to read your blog post and have a look at your um, IGTV around that because I find it a fascinating um, topic given that, you know, the the percentage is so high, 40, 40 to 60% of the population have that genetic mutation. And, um, you know, I think uh, at least here in Australia, there is that huge push and where like folate is like the big, um, you know, nutrient that we need to make sure that we increase, you know, around con conception and, and pregnancy and things like that. And on that point, you know, Australia is not alone in an effort to further reduce the incidence of neural tube defects. Um, right. You know, the Australian government legislated that all Australian flour um, millers had to add folic acid to wheat flour for bread making purposes. And, um, you know, that was, I think, kind of just a, a, a stopgap, but I, when I was researching this, it, it kind of made me wonder, you know, again, I'm a bit of a conspiracy theorist. There obviously is this push to put folic acid in these high carb, um, you know, products. Do you think that possibly, you know, that could be one of the reasons why the guidelines are so heavy on carb diets because they want us to consume all of these carbs to make sure we're consuming all of this folic acid. But, you know, it's a double-edged sword because if yeah. you're falling to this 40 to 60%, well, you're not really efficiently um, being able to metabolize the folic acid. I think the fortification of refined grains is a bit of a stopgap measure in that they know the population as a whole tends to eat a lot of those foods. I mean, in the States, 85% of carbohydrates consumed are refined. So it's either white flour or some form of added sugar. That's generally what we're talking about with refined, refined carbohydrates. You can also include like refined, um, you know, white rice where, you know, you've taken off the husk and some of the, some of the rice is actually um, enriched as well, right? Um, so I think it's more so once they made that connection between um, folate deficiency and neural tube defects, it was like, how can we fix this at a population level and how can we reach everyone? And, you know, for people who are don't have access to or aren't able to afford healthy foods, you know, there's government assistance programs that provide them with significant amounts of uh, fortified products. We, of course, have a, you know, food subsidy issue <laughs> where the government subsidizes the growing and production of a heck of a lot of different foods 
many of these um, grain crops and seed crops included, which are later, you know, stripped of their nutrients and put into various different food products and and animal feed, um, and then fortified. So, you know, of course, when we have refined grain where we add in synthetic folic acid and poorly absorbed iron and a couple other B vitamins, I mean, you're not replacing all that was lost. You're just replacing replacing a portion that is lost. So it's a little, yeah, it's definitely a stopgap kind of a measure. Mm. Um, the downsides of consuming a high amount of folic acid is that not all of it ends up getting metabolized. And so, you know, we started, I think we started fortifying the U.S., food supply with folic acid. I think it was 1998. It might be 1997. I think it was somewhere in the late nineties and within five years, I mean, we already had research that was questioning whether that was a good idea because they they started seeing higher rates of certain types of cancer, um, including colorectal cancer. And it's, it's known that, you know, folic acid can promote the growth of, uh, you know, precancerous lesions, especially when it's absorbed directly in the gut. So there began to be concerns on that front. Um, now we have a whole other line of research actually measuring levels of what they call unmetabolized folic acid or UMFA in the bloodstream. And then, you know, seeing whether it correlates with certain, you know, health conditions. So they have correlated high levels of unmetabolized folic acid with certain developmental problems, um, including autism. And so now there's a little more concern that maybe we might be creating some problems here, um, mm -hmm. certainly more subtle than, say, a neural tube defect. So I think they would probably still argue that the benefit outweighs the risk. Um, I would further argue since I'm, I'm like on the, you know, that my hill to die on is what's optimal, not just what's like stopgap. Yeah. Um, I would argue since we can supplement with the form that everybody's body can use regardless of their genetics, we should be using the form that our bodies can use. <laughs> so I would argue that you know, yes, synthetic folic acid has its place. And I certainly think in situations where people don't have access to enough high folate foods that naturally contain folate, certainly having some from refined grains is better than nothing. That's better than folate deficiency. Um, however, it also kind of ignores this whole other line of evidence showing that we have neural tube defects are not just a matter of folate deficiency, and certainly not a matter of folic acid deficiency, which is, I think, how it the public interprets it. There's whole bodies of research showing that higher levels of birth defects can happen with vitamin B12 deficiency, with choline deficiency, with um, an excess of exposure to uh, mercury, for example. So it's not just a folate issue. We need to support pathway and the whole folate metabolism pathway with a variety of nutrients, not just folate. Um, and we also need to mitigate other exposures to things that can impair development and are linked to birth defects, including toxin exposure. So I think it's just a little short-sighted that we've just put all all of our eggs in the folic acid basket yeah. instead of looking at this as like, we don't even know the mechanism, by the way, why folic acid seems to be effective. They still don't know. They still don't like, they still haven't found at a cellular level, like why this specifically seems to work. It's still a bit of a guess. Um, mm. And it does work to some degree, but it also has not eliminated neural tubes, neural tube defects um, entirely. So they still happen, um, albeit at a lower um, rate than they were before. And our population is getting a lot of folic acid. So the majority of women are getting plenty of folic acid. The average intake of folate in the diet in the US among women of childbearing age is over 600 micrograms per day, which is the amount recommended for pregnancy. Um, and half of that is coming from uh, folic acid fortified foods. So we really have solved like the folate <laughs> yeah. the supply of folate via folic acid has been solved. 
but we're not working on the 94% of pregnant women who are not getting enough choline. We're not talking about how our dietary guidelines for vitamin B12 in pregnancy are set at least three times lower than they should be. Based on the available evidence, when you provide women with enough, with the RDA of B12, they still end up deficient. They need at least triple what our guidelines say, right? So maybe if we worked on some of these other things, we would sort of work on fixing folate metabolism as a whole instead of just trying to like plug the hole in the (laughs) side of the bucket with folic acid and only folic acid. Wow, that's uh, really, really interesting because, you know, you don't hear about choline and B12 and things like that um, at all. And I would hazard a guess, you know, that adding folic acid to, you know, bread products and things like that is a cheaper way of doing it rather than adding the methylfolate to bread. Yeah. Is that one of the reasons why? Part of the reason is they're worried about stability, although there are ways to, um, and you would know this as a biochemist, but there are ways to like, you know, make a methylfolate salt. So it it is stabilized better. And that's what they do in most supplements. It's like a glucosamine salt with the methylfolate. When I've talked to people who work in the supplement world, when you go to purchase methylfolate, it actually can cost like 266 times more for like the raw material than folic acid. So until it's like incentivized, you know, manufacturers just aren't going to do it. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, I find that such a fascinating topic. Um, I love talking about biochemistry. I love talking about pathways, metabolism. (laughs) It's like such a nerd thing that Mika and I always like, oh, check this out. Oh my God, what does this latest research have in it? So thank you for expanding on that. Um, We are going to finish this with some quick fire questions if you will enlighten me. Um, So I'm going to start with uh, during COVID, my husband and I obviously needed to find some good TV to watch um, after the workday was done. And we got addicted to that show called Alone. Um, And for all those playing at home, it's an American reality TV show, but it's um, set in Vancouver Island in British Columbia. So in Canada where, where Lily is from and they were allowed to bring, I think it was like 10 items or something like that on this deserted Island. They were essentially flown in or, you know, in by, by sea and they were just put there and they had to survive for as long as they possibly could. So my question is, If you were put on an island and you had access to three foods and you were pregnant, what would be your top three foods that you would have to essentially sustain your nutrition for, let's say, two weeks? And you're saying just new, from a nutritional standpoint, not from, from a, what I would like, like <laughs> what would be most delicious. Um, yes. How would you, how would you okay. survive Lily? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm in the, I'm in the U S by the way. Oh, Canada. I don't know why I'm in Canada, but, oh. <laughs> but don't worry. Same thing. My, my answer would be the same thing. So, okay. Uh, food number one would be liver which sounds probably sounds absolutely atrocious to everybody listening. But in terms of my concern would be meeting my micronutrient requirements, first and foremost, Um, the body can make do with any sort of different macronutrient combination for a short period of time. So liver would, would uh, provide really like all of the micronutrients that I'd need. So I would do that for one. Um, but liver would be hard to eat much of. So this is going to be hard to keep it to three foods because, uh, yeah, the second one would probably be maybe salmon. Mm -hmm. The liver wouldn't give me enough, uh, DHA (laughs) for, uh, for baby's brain development. So, and salmon is full of all sorts of other yummy things. So probably salmon, 
And then I feel like I can't choose another animal food because that would just, um, that would kind of be over the top. I feel like I might actually go for something like, this might sound odd, but maybe like grapefruit or something. Okay. Um, get me a source of vitamin C, break the monotony of just having like fish and liver. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a source of carbs so I wouldn't be so um, exhausted only having meat and fat. Um, I I would maybe do that. And that might surprise people because, um, you know, citrus is not necessarily something I call out as like the most nutrient dense. But again, if we're only limited to three, I, I would break up the monotony with that. Okay, perfect. I like that. Um, what is one of the most outrageous or ridiculous guidelines or comments you've heard regarding nutrition throughout your career? Oh, gosh. One I am uh, really deep in the rabbit hole in right now is the recommendations around fat. The recommendations around fat are absolutely backwards. Um, I think it's completely absurd that we are still recommending that people eat, quote, heart-healthy vegetable oils uh, when they are anything but. And sadly, we've had research on this for a very long time. It's not like we've just uncovered that, you know, oh, saturated fat is, uh, you know, neutral for heart health, actually reduces the risk of stroke. (laughs) They're admitting that now. Um, But these you know, our intake of polyunsaturated fats, vegetable oils, has increased 20-fold in the last 100 years. And uh, it's actually known to result in a a vitamin E deficiency because you have to use up so much vitamin E fighting off lipid peroxidation because these unsaturated fats are so unstable in our body and are especially toxic when they've been heated and and fried with, like... (laughs) for who knows how many months at like a fast food restaurant. So I think one of the the greatest misnomers is probably that um, saturated fat is artery clogging and unsaturated fat is heart healthy. I think that's probably, obviously there's a ton of nuance with that, but just as a whole, that statement is completely false. (laughs) I don't don't know any other way to put it. It's just dead wrong. (laughs) What do you cook with at home? What's your go-to oil? So, I mean, we cook with a variety of of fats. Um, We we take it very, like, old school grandma, and we do, like, a cow share and sometimes a pig share from a pasture-raised farm. And then with it, you you get the fat that you can render into tallow and lard. And so that's what I use a fair amount. I mean, you get so much from that animal that you really don't need that much additional other fats for other things. Mm -hmm. We do love butter. Um, If, you know, the flavor is uh, appropriate for the dish, I like cooking with coconut oil. Um, You can see I'm specifically actually and very intentionally choosing to cook with saturated fats because they are very stable and can withstand heating without getting damaged and creating a whole bunch of uh, later inflammation in your body. We do also use um, liquid oils for particular purposes. So like if I'm doing a salad, you know, we'll use olive oil or avocado oil. Um, If I'm doing some kind of an Asian-inspired dish, I might do some toasted sesame oil. Yeah, it's like heated and it's an unsaturated fat, but you're using it, you know, in small amounts on occasion for a specific flavor, right? I I see nothing wrong with that. And that probably kind of accounts for yeah probably all of our fat intake would be from those sources great um is there a particular research topic that you would love to see more data on yeah uh low carbohydrate diets in pregnancy and uh you know the sad thing is i have consulted on at least with at least half a dozen research teams on their study design because they know my work for defending a lower carbohydrate intake as working for gestational diabetes, for example. Um, And I think six out of six, their study has been uh, declined. Like they're not able to actually like get the study funded and up and running because it doesn't pass like the review boards or whatever. 
um, or they can't get it funded. I mean, there's so many barriers they have to getting this research. And that's really, I think, the biggest challenge in this field is like, there's all these topics we would love to have research on that we don't have research on because it is so expensive or it strays just a little bit too far from the guidelines that makes them uncomfortable with it. Um, and that's particularly the case with pregnancy. So like in one example, this, this research team wanted to do a study on gestational diabetes and instead they like changed it to be on, um, you know, postpartum in women who had finished a gestational diabetes pregnancy um, because they weren't able to like make the initial one work. Mm. So yeah, we need a heck of a lot more research on that topic. I think from the available evidence we do have, I, I still make the case for it, but um, we could work on a lot of these different hypotheses that I have, like we could actually prove or disprove with those studies. And until they're done, you know, you have to kind of go about making your case for these things in a, a bit of a more of a roundabout way. Yeah, we definitely did that when I was in research. If you if you knew something was going to be met with a bit of resistance, we kind of sidestepped a little bit and made it a bit, you know, jazzercised it to something a bit more palatable. But uh, in the end, we we snuck in the study that that we actually wanted to do, which was <laughs> that that's I mean that's how you had to play the game because it all comes yeah. down to funding, and that's how your lab survived. So. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I had uh, one question, which is probably a bit left field, and a friend texted me about it last night, and she was asking me, for whatever reason, the um, sale of chlorophyll supplements has apparently just gone gangbusters here in Australia. And she was oh. asking me, what is it about chlorophyll? Do you think I need to have chlorophyll supplements? <laughs> and I thought to myself, no, just go eat some green leafy vegetables or something. Exactly. Go have a shot of wheatgrass or whatever. Is that a phenomenon going on over there with you guys? And and what like what do you think the the buzz about chlorophyll would be? That's an interesting one. <laughs> I don't know that that's happening here. Um, though I try to just kind of like stay out of reading. <laughs> Uh, news headlines so maybe it is happening and I'm just not aware of it uh, so you know it's there's I have nothing against chlorophyll I mean it's, <laughs> it's totally fine um, <laughs> my opinion on most supplements is like let's do everything food first as much as possible before yep. resorting to supplements and so in my opinion I think chlorophyll is a bit of a silly one to prioritize as a supplement I think there's a, a lot more things that would take precedence over chlorophyll, in my opinion. Um, though I did used to work in like the supplement space a little bit, and I know some people would seek out chlorophyll to like reduce body odor. Um, some people say it's helpful for fighting anemia. Although I, I would argue that I would uh, I, I would go with different actually foods, not even supplement to to work on that. Um, yeah, I would do a lot of, of other things other than chlorophyll. So I don't know why it's getting the buzz. Is this related to COVID or something? I, I have no idea. I need to do probably a bit more research around what what is happening. <laughs> uh, most likely yeah. some celebrities got some influencer deal on Instagram and it's blown up probably. or something like probably. that. But, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And our final question, which we ask all of our guests, and again, it's a bit left field, but it's a bit more personable. What would we find on your bedside table? Oh, yeah, that's easy. Um, kids' books and a salt lamp so that if I need to – this is mostly from the newborn days. If I need to turn on the light and don't want to wake up baby, you just turn on the salt lamp and water. That's it. I keep it very wow. simple. Like my bedside table doesn't have a whole lot on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Okay. So Lily, just in wrapping up, where can we find you on socials and your web? You can find me on my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. And that has, you know, my blog, a whole bunch of articles, like the full eight one we talked about. 
It has a free chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy if you want to just get a taste for the book um, before you buy. I don't know, a whole bunch of things on there. Um, it'll also link out to my books, to my social media. I'm most active, although not heavily active, on social media on um, Instagram these days, and my handle is the same as uh, the website. So Lily Nichols RDN, and yeah, that's about it. Perfect. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been a dream interview for me in particular. Um, when we were conceiving of the idea of, of this podcast, you were definitely my top pick. <laughs> I thought, oh, oh my goodness, if we could have Lily on the podcast, I would just die. So I've, I feel like I've kept my fangirl like, you know, in, internal, which has been really good. <laughs> But, um, yeah, thank you again for making the time to speak with me today. I, I know our listeners are going to get so much from this interview. Um, and if you've been hiding under a rock, people go get the book, read real food for pregnancy. It is such an eye opener and it's all evidence-based, which is totally our jam. So thank you again, Lily, for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Perfect. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also have to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.